Brothers and sisters, there is uh, one objection to the Christian faith that uh, surprisingly, at least I, I think it's surprising, that surprisingly that we don't hear all that much. Or maybe it's just that I don't hear it all that much. But it's the objection to a God who, on one hand, is personal, relating personally to the one who believes in Christ, but yet has the same personal relationship with thousands and even millions of people. Have you ever thought of it, that, that God hears the prayers of the saints and that He can hear all prayers as they are being offered at the same time. If this thought has not occurred to you, that even as you pray, many, many other prayers are being offered to God at the same time, if this thought has not occurred to you, then maybe it's because we do tend to be quite satisfied with having a personal relationship with God in Christ. And we don't tend to think about all the others who uh, have the same personal relationship to God and indeed are likely praying at the very same time. To some degree, that's the way it should be. Uh, I I remember a a commercial that was on television when I was younger. Uh, I don't remember who sponsored the the commercial, only that uh, an NFL football player uh, spent, you know, the 30 seconds talking about uh, having a personal relationship with God. Uh, neither do I remember who the player was, but I, I enjoyed seeing that commercial, in, in part because uh, I could watch it as one who indeed had a, a personal relationship with God, having been born into a Christian family and having been baptized as an infant, uh, to be marked as a, as a member of the church and a, a recipient of the covenant blessings of God in Christ. But then it might have occurred to me that... Uh, if people responded to this television commercial so that they too came into a personal relationship with God through Christ, well, then maybe God wouldn't have as much much time for me. I think that firstborn child often has that thought as the second child is born into the family. Mom's not going to have the time to spend with me. If it's not the thought of the child, it's the experience of the child and uh, often to their uh, great dismay. Uh, so maybe I would have to stand in line now in order to be heard by God uh, in my prayers. On one hand, we cannot help but think about God in human terms. In fact, God himself often reveals himself to us in Scripture in human terms. Uh, when he does so, we call it an anthropomorphism. Uh, the, the word part anthro has, uh, means having to do with man, uh, like the more familiar word anthropology, which is the study of people. Uh, and the word part morph, well, the, of course, the kids understand that word. Uh, it has to do with change, especially a change in appearance, so that an anthropomorphism is the matter of God changing in appearance Not that he actually changes, but he appears to us changed as he condescends to speak of himself in human terms in order that we might understand his revelation better. But on the other hand, we we must be careful not to take 
God's condescension in this way for granted. If we think that, since, since God speaks of himself in, in some human terms, maybe we can too. Well, then we might start to project human characteristics upon God. Namely, we might start to doubt that God can listen to all the prayers of his people at the same time. When we have multiple people talking to us at the same time, we have to put up our hands and say, wait a minute. Uh, one at a time, please. And then we choose which of them is going to be the first one to speak first. Not so with God. I know you know this, but I want us to stop and think about it. It, it should be to our great amazement that we have a God who can hear all prayers from each of his people personally, from every corner of the earth, all at the same time. We begin in this way because as we continue in Romans 11, the Apostle Paul is still teaching on how the gospel was going out now to all nations. So that the first point this morning is grace to all nations. What was really an explosion had occurred at Pentecost, although it was at first a kind of implosion. Uh, with Luke's account of the outpouring of the Spirit at, at Pentecost, we learned that many people had come into Jerusalem on that day from the surrounding countries. Uh, this is why the disciples were given by the Spirit to speak in tongues so that they could communicate, uh, and, and not just communicate, but preach, proclaim the resurrection of Christ and the gospel to all those who were there that day. In Acts 2, Luke even lists uh, the countries uh, from which the people had come, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. So included in in this Jerusalem crowd were Jews who were living in other countries who had come back to Jerusalem for the Jewish feast of, of Pentecost. But there were many others who were not of Jewish ethnicity, but had converted to Judaism. They had come to believe that Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, is the one true God. So first, a kind of implosion as both Jews and converts to Judaism from all over the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, but also by God's design, they came to hear the first preaching of the gospel since the resurrection of Christ. But then by the power of the Holy Spirit, an explosion so that from that point on, the gospel began to go forth. Granted, it was a bit of a slow-motion explosion. Uh, th there was some time between Pentecost and when the, when the disciples would begin to do what Jesus had commissioned them to do, namely to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's Mark 16, verse 15. And also to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
and that's Matthew 28. But the book of Acts records what was finally an explosion by the Spirit as the gospel then went out into the world to bring salvation even to the Gentiles. It's been pointed out here before, but, but, but think again about how remarkable that the ministry of Jesus as Savior of the world yet was carried out in a very, very small region compared to the full surface of the earth and the nations of the world. Uh, it would be like if, if the first coming of Jesus had happened in this country, and yet every miracle, every teaching, every event in the ministry of Jesus had taken place in Rhode Island. With so much of the rest of the country being oblivious. Oh, maybe the rumors would have gone forth, uh, but otherwise the response would have been, hmm, well, good for Rhode Island, I guess. So up until Pentecost, it was good for Israel, I guess. Even those who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, they could only show up and say, hey, whatever happened to uh, uh, Whatever happened with that, uh, that one man, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, last year when I was here, everyone was talking about him. And the answer might have been, well, you know, they crucified him. It didn't work out. It, it, it didn't go anywhere. But then the day came when the resurrection of Jesus was proclaimed. The resurrection of Jesus was given witness by those who saw him alive risen from the, from the grave. The Spirit was poured out, and the grace of God flowed to all nations, eventually even to the ends of the whole earth. In Romans 11, verse 13, the Apostle Paul even identifies himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. He writes, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. The focus of, of Paul's ministry had come to be upon the Gentiles. And, and he, had, he had been beaten into it, we might say. Peter had to be given a vision, if you remember. The, the sheet let down from heaven, filled with all the unclean animals, and, uh, and hearing the Lord speak to him, kill and eat. Do not call unclean what I have made clean. And so Peter had come to understand that the gospel would go forth now to all the world. But Paul, Paul was, was beaten into being an apostle to the Gentiles. He was rejected like Jesus himself even. He was rejected, he was mocked, he was beaten in enough synagogues trying to preach the gospel to the Jews, that he came to, to say to them on one occasion, your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It might be hard for us to understand why the Jews, why even the disciples, had trouble understanding this from, uh, uh, or understanding that this was happening. Jesus had even said, as we've already noted, go and make disciples of all nations. 
But just as the disciples had not understood that Jesus must go to Jerusalem and there be crucified, only to rise again three days later, so now too. They did not fully understand the command of Christ to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The Apostle Paul even calls it the mystery of Christ now revealed in his day. In Ephesians 3, verse 4 and following, he writes of the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it is as it has now been revealed. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. But why was it a mystery? Paul certainly cannot mean that it was made a mystery by God or that God kept it hidden until then. After all, from the beginning, God had, had told Abraham many times that in you all the families of the nations or all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 12, in Genesis 22, in Genesis 26, even more Israel was given to sing as we still sing today. Psalm 22, where it says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And Psalm 45 says of the Christ, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. And Psalm 46, which is more familiar, says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. So how is it a mystery that the gospel would one day go forth to all nations, even to the ends of the earth? It was a mystery because Israel did not understand it. It was a mystery because the spirit who inspired the scriptures had not yet inspired the people of God to grasp the, the truth and the promise of God's word and the eventual reality of God's grace to the nations. But now, what do you do with Israel? Remember, that's the central issue in this part of Paul's letter to the Romans. What was God done with Israel? To use Paul's own words and question in verse 1 of, of Romans 11, has God rejected his people? Paul's answer was, by no means. And, and the way Paul understood it was, was to see that as the gospel went forth into the world, the nation of Israel would be made jealous. So that the second point now is a practical jealousy. In verse 11, he writes, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By this, Paul means either... By rejecting Christ, did they stumble beyond the grace of God yet to save them? Or, he means, did they stumble just to stumble for no purpose of God yet to be fulfilled? But the answer to both questions is no. The Jewish people were not outside of the reach of God's grace 
And God indeed had a purpose in their stumbling. In fact, it was a, a twofold purpose, we might say. First, Israel stumbled so that the apostles would be moved to answer the great commission of Christ to go into all the world. Second, Israel stumbled so they might yet be saved. Even as the gospel would go forth into all the world, even as more and more Gentiles came to believe in the God of Israel, so the Jews would be made jealous, so that more of them would yet come to believe in their own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We might call it a practical jealousy. Paul even says it twice. In verse 11, he writes, Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. In verse 13, he writes, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And then verse 15 is his explanation. For if their rejection means the, reconcil the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? but life from the dead. So here we have yet another resurrection. First, there is the resurrection of Jesus. Second, by the resurrection of Jesus and through the res resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of sinners unto faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, and furthermore, there would yet be, in a sense, the resurrection of the Jewish people. Some of them, Paul Paul included, some of them had already been born again unto repentance and faith in Jesus. The rest, argues Paul, might yet believe. They appear to be dead people, uh, a lost cause, but God is the God of, of resurrection. And neither they nor any other ethnic people on the face of the earth are a lost cause to God. There is, I'm sure you know, there is a, a nasty history of hatred toward the Jews, even within the church. But that should never be the case. Granted, God completed His plan of salvation through His people Israel, so that as Jesus was rejected by His own people, those people were the Jews. But the thing to see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is, is that Israel was always a microcosm, we might say. Israel was a, a kind of petri dish. Israel was, was, was a people, on one hand, set apart from the world, and yet always representing the world. When we hear of Abraham's unbelief, we are meant to see our own unbelief. When we read of David's sin... We are given to see our own sin. When we see the unbelief of the Pharisees, and, and even as Jesus was rejected by his own people, we are, are made by the Spirit to look into our own hearts. So who was it that put Jesus to death on the cross? Was it the Jews? Yes, his own disciples betrayed him and abandoned him and denied him. The Pharisees accused him. The people served as false witnesses and yelled, crucify him. But it was Pilate who condemned him, and it was Roman soldiers who carried out the crucifixion. So who put Jesus to death? 
The world put Jesus to death. And as believers now in Christ, you and I have come to see, have we not, and to understand that we, we put Christ on the cross. To blame the Jews and the Jews only for the death of Jesus is really the stuff of unbelief. Because faith in Christ is really the confession that my sin put Jesus on the cross. How can I blame just the Jews or even the Jews and the Romans when Jesus bore my sin on the cross? So Paul sees that the, that the Jews were not a lost cause, that they were not outside the grace of God. And, and this was an important lesson to be learned, really, in all the churches of, of Paul's day, because the churches were made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And here Paul is even expressly writing to the Gentile believers in Rome. He writes in verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. How would the church at Rome cohere, we might say? How would, uh, or what would bring Jews and Gentiles to come together and to, and to work together and to stay together when for thousands of years there, there had been division and hostility, even hatred between Jews and the rest of the world? There must be humility in the hearts of all. And so the last point is the humility of faith. Paul uses the metaphor of a, of a vineyard to, to help the Gentiles see that rather than hating the Jews for, for, their, uh, uh, for their rejection of Jesus, uh, they should rather look to the Jews as being the root and source of their salvation. He does not deny, of course, that God is the root and that Christ is the source, but, but Israel had long served as the means by which God's grace now flowed to them, to the Gentiles. In verse 17, he writes, But if some of the branches were broken off, and, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the, in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." Jesus himself was a Jew. The apostles were Jewish. Paul was now writing to them as a Jewish man. What sense, then, did it make to view the Jewish people with hostility and to see them as a lost cause, as being outside of the grace of God? In the vineyard, the branches from one plant that produced good fruit, let's say, one plant produces really good fruit, and so a branch from that plant was grafted into another plant, and that plant produced a, a greater quantity of fruit. And so the combination of the, of the best qualities of, of each plant, branches from one plant producing the better quality, were cut off from that plant and grafted into the plant producing the greater quantity. One example of the reason for grafting in a vineyard. And in like manner, teaches Paul, the, the Gentile believers are, are really, they were really being cut, cut off from their people and grafted into the Jewish nation. If you think about it, it's, it's really why we can sing the Psalms in our day. 
How is it that, that the songs Israel sang of old have become the songs of the church of Jesus Christ? Because we as Gentiles have been grafted into Israel. And so Paul carries the metaphor further to say that, that if the Gentiles can be grafted into Israel, how much more can, an, can a, a believing Jewish person be grafted back into the plant. Well, let's finish with these uh, several applications. First, I don't know that we have a particular need to hear this. I hope we don't. But Christians have no business hating Jewish people because they are Jews. Granted, Christians have no business hating the people of any ethnicity, But given the history of animosity toward the Jews, even within the church, let it be heard, let it be learned, and let it be practiced that the Jewish people are no exception. If we are believers in Christ, then by definition, at the heart of our faith is the conviction that we put Jesus on the cross. It was your sins, it was my sins for which Christ died. And yet, let it, and, and, and yet let it be remembered that, that nobody killed Jesus, but that he went willingly to the cross, he laid down his life, and he actively gave up his spirit. And all this according to the plan of God for our salvation. If Jesus is the Savior of the world, with the elect drawn from every nation on earth, And if the Jewish people are still here, which they are, then Jesus is still the Savior of the Jews, his own ethnic people. Second, whether Jew or Gentile, let us be careful to avoid ethnic pride. It cannot be denied that the Lutherans have a German background, the Methodists Uh, come from an English background, the Presbyterians are from the Scottish, the Reformed largely from um, a Dutch background. And sadly, such ethnic heritage often serves to stir a, a sinful pride and to divide the church. And in this country, it is all too easy now for American Christians to see themselves far too much as Americans and far too little, as believers in Christ, whose most important citizenship is in heaven. Paul teaches us in Philippians 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes to the churches, saying, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And Revelation 7 verse 9 says, Of the church in heaven, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, 
and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One last application. Let each of us live in such a way as to make our neighbors jealous. If Paul saw this purpose in the gospel going out to the Gentiles, then whatever the ethnicity of our neighbor, we too can live in such a way that our neighbors see what we have in Christ and and then they want it too. It seems clear that that when Paul refers to jealous, he he doesn't mean a a seething, bitter jealousy, but simply that others will, will want what believers have. So let us be cheerful. Let us be friendly. Let us be generous. Let us be selfless. Let us be helpful to others around us in our lives. Let the world see that we are not clinging to this life. We are not living in desperation, as if terrified of of death and the grave. We have Christ. We have the promises of the gospel. And others will want what we have if we intentionally, purposefully put what we have in Christ on display in our lives. May God, by His Spirit, through Jesus Christ, grant each of us this faith and just such a life lived before the world. Amen. Let's pray. We are the Gentiles, O God our Father, and we are so thankful, not only for the work of Christ, but for the good news of that work going out to all nations and even thousands of years later now to us in this nation. O Lord, we pray that we will love all people regardless of ethnicity, including your people of the Old Covenant, the the people of Israel, And as we have now been drawn into Israel, as we are now your covenant people in Christ, may we love not only our Jewish neighbors, but all of our neighbors, knowing that in the end, indeed, that triumphant church in heaven will be made up of every nation, every tribe, people speaking every language on the face of the earth. We long for that day, and may we live in the knowledge of it, with certainty for it, each and every day until then. Keep us near you. Keep us from hatred and bitterness. Keep us loving our neighbor. Make us to be cheerful and joyful and kind and compassionate toward others around us, regardless of what they look like, regardless of who they are. Whoever they are, may they become one of yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And we offer ourselves to that end that you would use us to gather your people in. 
We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.